I want to add my welcome to everybody here in the auditorium, everybody in the atrium, and joining us online from all over. And you know, as I began working on this message, I thought I would base it on the couple in the Bible that were the most in love. What couple do you think in the Bible were the most in love? As I began working on it, it became harder for me to come up with an answer. I mean, you would think Adam and Eve. You know, he didn't have to hear stories about all her old boyfriends, and she didn't have to hear what a great cook his mom was. Uh, they had their honeymoon in paradise. That's better than Wyoming. But it went downhill from there. Then I thought, what about I, uh, Abraham and Sarah? No, no. They, Abraham twice lied that Sarah instead of being his wife, was his sister. And then he got her servant, Hagar, pregnant. I thought, well, Isaac and Rebecca. No, nope. they fought constantly about their kids. He favored Esau, she favored Jacob. Jacob wasn't them. Jacob got both wives pregnant and both their servants. Uh, David was a disaster as a husband. Solomon was worse. When Job's life got bad, Mrs. Job said to him, curse God and die. I may, I'm not making this up. I read somebody online, they said they thought the couple that had the best marriage in the Bible was Noah and Joan of Arc. Now, if you're not laughing, Joan of Arc was not a Bible character. That's what makes that funny. Uh, but you know, in the fairy tales, you know how the story goes. The story goes like this in all the fairy tales. Life's difficult, life's hard. Then you fall in love, you get married, and you live happily ever after. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it say any couple falls in love, gets married, and lives happily ever after. Nowhere. Every couple, every marriage, every relationship faces challenges. They all do. I heard somebody say, marriage is like getting a phone call in the middle of the night. First you get the ring, then you wake up. <laughs> I had somebody say to me, I thought I married Mr. Right. I just didn't know his first name was always. Well, we're in this series, Four Loves, and I was given the, the task to talk about romantic love. And I want to begin, I want to look at a passage that talks about the wonder and the mystery of love. And this is from Proverbs in the Old Testament. Proverbs 30, verses 18 and 19, up on the side screens, it's in the message notes. The writer says this, there are three things that are too amazing for me. Four that I do not understand. At any time there's a numerical deal like that, you know where there's a three and a four? The fourth one is the point. Okay, so here's the three. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, here it is, and the way of a man with a young woman. Such a mystery, isn't it? The way love works. And before I go on, I want to say something very quickly, very important for us to acknowledge as a church. And it's a myth that I want, to, I want to dispel right here. And here's the myth. Being married is being normal. That is a myth. It's a myth. And I say that because we live in a society 
where there's this assumption that it's like normal to be married, and if you're not married, you're somehow lacking. I mean, this gets communicated all the time in books, films, TV shows, all the time, even in churches. Churches, there could be this subtle or not so subtle message that, you know, marriage is normal, and if you're single, you're somehow lacking. You know, and we forget about this. We forget about singleness, single people, with all the pressure to be sexually active today at a young age and outside of marriage. We forget singleness can be this incredibly intense challenge. And we married people, we forget about all that. We forget about it. And in fact, we forget Jesus himself was single. I mean, he was single and he was fully human. Fully human, that means he had all the desires, everybody else, but he chose to be single. If Jesus was in the church, he wouldn't be in the young marriage group. He'd be in the singles group. Actually, he wouldn't be in either group because Jesus' dream for the church, the church would be a community of young people, old people, rich, poor, multi-ethnic, married and single devoted to growing spiritually together, honoring one another, respecting one another, valuing each other, and that are there for each other. And I wanted to say that right from the beginning, because we have to always remember the kind of church we are here at Crossroads. But for those who choose to be married, God tells us what his goal is for those people that choose marriage. It's found in Genesis 2, verse 24. Let's read this. And God sets the goal for married people at the oneness level. Let's read this verse out loud together. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Oneness is the level that God sets for married people. And what is oneness? That's when, when couples communicate openly and freely about matters of the heart, where they're encouraging one another. They're acting thoughtfully towards one another. They appreciate each other's uniquenesses and they encourage that. And they accept and tolerate weaknesses. They're affectionate towards one another. They compliment each other. They don't tear each other down. And then not only that, they resolve conflict constructively. They make decisions together. They face pressure courageously. They serve each other joyfully. That's the oneness that God talks about. That's the kind of relationship God desires for every married couple. It's at the oneness level, oneness level. But even though that's God's goal for marriage, this oneness level, Phyllis and I, uh, we've discovered, and by the way, we've been married over 100 years this year. Phyllis and I have discovered it takes very little to dis disconnect from time to time. Where we're not experiencing oneness. We're not communicating openly and freely about matters of the heart. We're not serving each other joyfully. We're not acting thoughtfully towards one another. We're not relating to each other affectionately. And you know what I believe? I believe we're like every other married couple. I believe every married couple, they drift in and out of that oneness level from time to time. And like most married couples, 
We have found there's a number of factors that cause this. And we've talked about it, and that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about three major categories that have affected us, and I think they affect all uh, married couples from time to time. And these three categories, they take a toll on marriages, partnerships. They take a toll on them. And here's the first one. You can write it down. It's an unhealthy pace of life. The effects of an unhealthy pace of life. It'll drain the romance right out of the relationship. And I'm sure you've noticed, we're always in a hurry these days. We're busier and busier all the time. Moving faster and faster. I mean, we've mastered the technique of driving, you know, talking on the phone, eating a burger all at the same time. We have a name for this today. We have a, a term for that activity. We give it the hopeful euphemism, multitasking, right? I mean, we could call it doing more than one thing at one time, but that would take too long to say. The car, the car's the favorite place for this. I mean, we busy, sick people. We drive, we eat, we drink coffee, we monitor the radio, we shave, apply makeup, talk on speakerphone, we're checking emails at red lights, making hand gestures, all at the same time. You know, at home, we watch television. We got the television on, we're watching that, we're cooking dinner, we're carrying on conversations, doing homework simultaneously. I mean, look at what Paul says about this. Paul addresses this. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. And what's Paul saying there? You know what he's saying? God's given us a free will. God's given you a free will. You can go out. You can overload your schedule 10 times. God's not going to stop you. God's not going to stop you. God will permit that. You can make those kinds of decisions. You can, but that doesn't mean it's beneficial. That doesn't mean it's a good thing because it's not. It's not. Take a look at what the Bible, Bible says clearly, if we work all the time, we're being foolish. Look at Ecclesiastes 10, 15. Only someone too stupid to find his way home would wear himself out with work. And that goes for wear herself out with work. Maybe you've noticed this. I remember the days of daytimers. Remember daytimers? You start the day, you could have your first appointment at 8 a.m. Then by popular demand, they changed the format. You could start your day at 7 a.m. Now we have smartphones. You know, there's no beginning, no end. We can schedule appointments 24 hours a day, and we do it. We do it. We start earlier. We work longer run a little faster, do a little more business between sunup and sundown. Time's money. We never have enough money, right? So we just keep going faster, faster and faster, just to keep up. You know what I think? The number one enemy of romance in a relationship, you know what the number one thing is? The enemy of romance. It's not adultery. It's not anger, not bitterness. Number one enemy of romance, busyness. Busyness, we're just too busy. We're too busy for each other. We don't have time for each other anymore. Don't have time. We're like two ships passing in the night. Both couples in a relationship, both people working full time. Two ships passing in the night. 
just don't have time for each other anymore. You know, in Ephesians 5, Paul's addressing husbands and wives, and he says to them, you're to relate to each other with respect, with cooperation. Then in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul makes a very interesting statement, totally countercultural. He's addressing husbands. He's talking to husbands at this church in Ephesus. Look at what he says, Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and live happily ever after. No, he doesn't say that. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You love like that. And the Greek word for love, and it's also translated treasure, was in the present imperative tense. A better translation would be, husbands, keep on loving your wives. And I don't want you to miss this. I'm telling you, that was not conventional wisdom. Back in that patriarchal society, not at all. And you know what? Partially what Paul is saying here, partially what Paul is saying, he's saying to husbands here, he's saying marriage partially exists so you men who hold all the power will learn to serve people. You will learn to give yourselves up. That's partially what he's saying right here. And we miss that. Some people let their career, they let their career get in the way of their relationship, the way of their romance. Other people, if I'm honest, I think it's parenting can do this. Parenting, raising kids. Raising kids can be so all-consuming. Raising our kids, that in the midst of just raising kids, we often neglect to give the kids what they want most, which is a happy mom and dad. You know, just out of curiosity, how many of you have children at home? Children at home. How many of you have a preschooler at home? Anybody here have two preschoolers? Two preschoolers at home. Can we have a moment of silence for these people? I mean, that's the only silence they're going to get. That's it. But whoever the primary wage owner is, you know, uh, during those years uh, in the family, whoever those years are, she works from sunup to sundown, or he works sunup to sundown. You know, they come home, they're thoroughly, thoroughly expended, and they're greeted at the door by a dad or a mom who's been home with the kids. They were expended at noon. And usually it's both couples working today. And they both come home. It's like six o'clock. Then from six to nine, what are they both doing after working all day? Six to nine, it's bottles, diapers, dishes, spills, baths. They get the kids finally tucked into bed after the 10th glass of water. They go around, pick up the toys, put them all back in place. By the time the husband and wife drags himself into bed, how often is either one of them thinking about romance after that kind of day? And if one is, the other I guarantee isn't. <laughs> and it seems like those days will last forever. Seems like those days are gonna last forever. Now, my kids have been grown a long time, but I remember those days. I remember those days like a bad dream. I thought that era would never end. On a personal side note, uh, 
I remember Phyllis used to say, she used to say, even though we both worked full-time, she said when I was doing things around the house, she felt like it was valuing her. She did. She said like when I would vacuum the house and not just be on the couch after working and she worked all day, but I would vacuum the house, she felt like I was valuing her. Or even if I was out in the yard working, cleaning the garage, she said she felt a special kind of connectedness between the two of us during those times. She actually said that when she watched me giving the kids a bath, she felt physically attracted to me. And back in those days, we had the cleanest kids in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know what? The University of Nebraska, they did a study. You know, what does it take to have a fantastic marriage? You know what they found was a common denominator? In every fantastic marriage, they found the same thing. The couple spent time together. That's it. They spent time together. Okay, you're going to have homework on each of these three points. So here's the first homework assignment. We haven't had homework in a while. And I can't check up on this. So you do this. If you want to grow, you don't want it, don't do it. But here it is. You arrange a time, unrushed time. You sit down with your spouse, your partner, and you talk about how many of your problems do you think are the result of the pace of your lives? And put a percentage on it, like 20%, 50%, 80%. You come up with a percentage. What is, you know, how many of our relational problems are because of this, this shattering pace of life we live? And then the second part of this assignment, you come up with three practical ways. You're going to declare war on that pace of life. And you're gonna change some things. And there's no easy answer to this. No easy answer, I don't know how you'll answer this one, but man, it is important. If we want our relationships to work, it's that important to do this kind of thing and declare war on the pace of life and figure out how you can spend time together. Okay, first one, the, the effects of an unhealthy pace of life. Here's the second one we thought about. Stored up grievances. That's a romance drainer. Stored up grievances. And in my 23 years here, I can't tell you how often I've talked with a husband or a wife who said to me, all the feelings that I once had for my, my spouse are gone. They are dead, those feelings. And whenever I hear that kind of thing, I, I almost always think, well, at least part of what killed those feelings were stored up grievances, hidden hostilities, deep hurts that never got addressed. Those hurts that were never addressed, they poisoned and infected the relationship. Eventually they consumed whatever feelings a couple once had for one another. Stored up grievances, they can't be ignored. ignored. They gotta be taken out of the closet. They gotta be put up on the table for discussion. You gotta talk about this stuff. You gotta work through this stuff. Because if we just hold them inside, they become feeling killers. They do. Look at what Paul writes, Ephesians 4, 31. He's very clear here. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Why does Paul say that? 
He says that because those things, they destroy relationships. That's why he says it. We got to learn to deal with it with hurt feelings, or we'll have all kinds of problems. And I know somebody here is thinking, they're thinking right now, I brought stuff up before, John. I brought stuff up, I talked about my concerns. I talked about my concerns with my spouse. My spouse was totally unresponsive. Nothing changed. So I talked into a brick wall. Brick wall, nothing changed. So I decided, I'm just going to ignore them. I'm going to push them down. I'm going to suppress them, those things. And I just hope they go away. Anybody doing that strategy? Don't raise your hand. Anybody doing that strategy? Just push it down, hoping they go away. You hold on to that strategy long enough, you can kiss the dream of oneness. You can kiss it goodbye. Goodbye. And believe it or not, though, believe it or not, when stored up grievances are brought out of the closet, put up on the table, when they are talked about, when they're dealt with, when people admit these hurt feelings and they're talked about and they're resolved, it's amazing how dead feelings can have a miraculous resurrection. They can. I'm not going to, but I could give you names of people. I, I'm not looking at anybody in this room. I see people here that I had this kind of discussion with. People that said, my feelings for my spouse, they're gone. They are dead to me. But they were willing to keep working on things. And they talked about it. And they admitted their hurts and they listened and, and they dealt with it and they worked on these things. And, and they resolved it all. And it's amazing how where these feelings were gone, now love burns brightly in a relationship. It does. Paul talks about the importance of speaking the truth in Ephesians 4.15. He says, speak the truth in love. Then in Ephesians 4.35, he says, you got to put off falsehood. You got to speak truthfully, truthfully to your neighbor for all members of one body. I mean, there's a story in Luke 15, uh, it's the story of the prodigal son. Many of you know the story. This kid takes the dad's money, goes off, blows it all. Then it says he came to his senses, came to his senses. And he said, I want to go home. And the cool thing is he did. He went home and he repented. And when he saw his dad, he said, Father, I've sinned against you. It was me who did it. You know, he didn't come back. And, he didn't come back and say, you know, I've had issues from my childhood. You know, we have had issues from my childhood. And that's why I took off and did all those things. He didn't say that. Not at all. He said, you know, I'm the one. I got my own stuff. I got my own stuff right here. And that's why I did the things I did. You know, I've said before, I've said before, there are 12 words that hold a marriage together. 12 words. I was wrong. I am sorry, please forgive me, I love you. I think I should say those words every year here. The 12 words that hold a marriage together. I was wrong, I am sorry, please forgive me, I love you. Maybe you need to repent of something in your relationship. 
Maybe you need to repent of something. Maybe it's a critical spirit that's crushing your your spouse, your partner. Maybe you need to repent of a selfish attitude, a domineering spirit, unfaithfulness. Maybe it's abuse. Maybe you need to repent of pride. Pride, there's a stubbornness inside of you that keeps you from saying and doing the kinds of things that continues to create love in your relationship. It's a spirit of pride you need to repent of. Maybe even right now as I'm talking, you got your arms folded, you're going, I'm not listening to this stuff. That pride inside of you will keep you from saying and doing the things that'll build your relationship and build your marriage and keep romance alive. Maybe you need to repent of something. Here's my second homework assignment. This is high risk stuff, I admit, the second one. Very high risk. You arrange a time to talk to your spouse, your partner, in an unrushed setting. Unrushed setting. And you say, you say, honey, it's time we time we clean out the closet. I want you to air your grievances with me. Even little ones, even the ones, even the ones you aired before and I like wasn't responsive to them. I want you to do it again. Even the ones you think are gonna make me angry. I want, you, I want to hear them. And then, then I'll air mine. But we've got to get these things out on the top table. And we've got to talk about these things. We've got to clear up these long lingering hurts that we have. We've carried them far too long. You say, whoa, that sounds scary. That sounds risky. Man, that's going to create all kinds of chaos. You're right, it probably will. It probably will. But potential oneness hangs in the balance. You've got to do it. No guts, no glory. You've got to do it. You've got to take the risk. And you know what? Sometimes you've got to do this in a therapist's office. You've got to sit down with a therapist and have this conversation. And we can give you names of therapists that can help with that. But sometimes you can have these kinds of conversations over many dinners together, unrushed dinners together. Or maybe you have a, you know a couple, a couple that you trust, that you love, they love you, they know you, they're for you. Sometimes you can have those kind of conversations there. But we've got to have the conversations because potential oneness, that's what hangs in the balance right here. And we've got to take the risk. And I believe it's worth it if we do. But we've got to get help. We got to get help to deal with these stored up grievances. But that's the second romance drainer. And I'd save the best one, the best one for last because, you know, once we're resolving the conflicts, the, the grievances, and we're talking again, and we're learning together how to control that, uh, that pace of life stuff, then we got to sit down, have a dinner together, and talk about how we can have fun together as a couple, how we can rebuild the fun side of the relationship because the third romance drainer, it's lack of good old fashioned fun. That's number three, lack of good old fashioned fun. I mean, you wanna rekindle romance? Date each other again. You know, rebuild the fun side of the marriage. Rebuild the fun side so it doesn't get boring. 
It gets so boring sometimes. I even actually believe couples that are having fun together on a consistent basis, it's impossible for the relationship to go bad. Healthy couples have fun together. No, I'm changing it. Healthy couples make fun. They make fun. Fun is not natural for everybody. So they make fun. And making fun doesn't mean you got to be a stand-up comedian. You know, jump out with a rubber nose and glasses on. Stuff like that. But a relationship where there's fun and laughter, it's impossible for it to go bad. Look at what Proverbs says, Proverbs 17, 22. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And we fall into this trap as couples. You know, we go, what do you want to do tonight? Oh, I don't care. What do you want to do? I don't care. What do you want to do? I don't care. What do you want? Well, let's talk about it over dinner. Where do you want to go to dinner? I don't care. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Where do you want to go? And our big mistake is when they say, I don't care, we believe them. Oh, okay. Well, then let's have dinner. Let's go to Runza. Let's go to Runza. No, let's splurge. We'll go to Sonic. (laughs) Somebody here is going, John, we've been married 55 years. We don't date each other anymore. I go, well, that's too bad. We go to the same restaurant every week. I go, well, drive there a different way. Get crazy. (laughs) Drive there a different way. Sit on the same side of the booth. You know, unscrew the light, make it romantic, bring your own candles, put them on the table, bring a tablecloth. McDonald's doesn't care. <laughs> Just do it. Look at Proverbs 18:15. I love this verse. Intelligent people are always ready to learn. They're always ready to learn. Their ears are open for knowledge. Intelligent people are always ready to learn. They're always open to new ideas. That's what it's saying. You're a smart woman. You're an intelligent guy. You gotta be open to these new ideas. You have to. And it might help to think back to when you dated one another. You know, what what were the things when you dated each other that made you fall in love? I mean, can you reintroduce some of those things? Can you do, do some of those things? Or come up with new stuff. I mean, we live in Colorado. I mean, it's endless what you can do all winter long. Go on a hike, play golf, go to ball games, go to a Nuggets game, Eagles, go to the Rockies, spend a day in the mountains, go to a concert, plan a picnic, ride bikes on the bike path, go to a museum, walk through an art gallery, set the volleyball net up in the backyard, that kind of thing. You know, go to Old Town, walk around, go to a movie. You know, roast marshmallows on a bonfire. All kinds of things. I mean, this cleans out the cobwebs. You know, it lightens up the heaviness. It seems to find its way into every relationship over time. You know, couples are so serious all the time. I mean, you think about what our conversations end up being. It's all serious stuff. You know, we're talking about money, the economy. Politics, kids, jobs, responsibilities. We forget to laugh. Forget to have fun together. I mean, how's the fun factor in your relationship? How's the fun factor? I'll say it again. I almost think couples that are having fun together, it's impossible for the relationship to go bad. You know, on a regular basis, it's impossible. Marriages break down sometimes 
plain old-fashioned boredom. Boredom. Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Enjoy life with your husband whom you love. We got to develop things that we love to do together. Otherwise, the relationship just goes stale. Here's your third homework assignment. You can figure out what this one is. You know, you decide how you're going to improve the fun side of the relationship. How are you going to improve the fun side of the relationship? Decide if there's things when you were dating that, you, that brought you together. Can you do some of those things? Or come up with new ones. But decide what activities you're going to do consistently that are fun. And then go about doing them. That's the third one. And I suppose about now, somebody, somebody's sitting here going, man, this sounds like a lot of work. Man, it sounds like a lot of work to figure out how to control our uh, pace of life. Sounds like a lot of work to, you know, get these stored up grievances out on the table and process them and resolve them. Sounds like a lot of work to figure out how to inter- introduce fun stuff into the marriage. It is work. It's a lot of work. But in my book, it's worth it. But you have to decide for yourself. I mean, marriage is not easy. It's not easy. Don't let anybody tell you it's easy. It's not easy for the same reason no relationship is easy. You know why? It's because it's made up of two sinners. That's why it's not easy. And when a marriage is most in trouble is when the one sinner thinks the other sinner's sins are worse than theirs. That's when it's in the most trouble. When I get preoccupied with the other person's sin rather than my own, that's when it's most in trouble. The only force that holds two sinners together in a relationship is grace. Grace. And the only place you go for grace is God. And so you got to bring your hearts to God. If you've never invited Jesus into your life, individually you have to do that. Individually. Say, Jesus, come into my life. Direct my life. I repent of the things I've done wrong in this relationship. But I want you to be the the Lord, the leader of my life. And then as a couple, you come together and you pray together. And you say, God, we want to commit our relationship to you. And we want to treat each other the way you want us to treat each other. That's what I mean by bringing your heart to God. Maybe you're married. You're grateful. Everything's going great. Bring your heart, your grateful heart to God. Maybe you're married. You're in a lot of pain. Maybe you're married. You've got a lot of issues you haven't been dealing with. You haven't been focusing on those issues. You've been keeping them at arm's length. You're focusing on other stuff. Focusing on work, the kids, maybe even church. That's a lot easier to focus on that stuff than to dive in and say, How are we going to improve this relationship so that we could experience oneness as God designed? What are some of those things? It's time to have the courage to dive in, and God will give you the grace to do it. Maybe you made a lot of mistakes in your marriage. You got deep regrets. Maybe you're single. You wish you were married. Maybe you're single. All this talk about marriage and love, it's painful to you for some reason. Life requires grace. Life requires grace for everybody. 
married, single, whatever path people are on in life, whatever their condition, life requires grace for everybody. And the ultimate source of grace is God. God's in the grace. That's God's business, the grace business. And God's got more than enough grace for your life and your relationship. Let's bow our heads together. And let's pray together. Dear God, in this moment, uh, would you flood every heart, every life with your grace, everyone? And God, would you bring to parents, God, your guidance and your patience, give them insight during these difficult times of raising kids and, and help those parents to talk about issues that, that maybe they're not, they're not addressing. And for married people here, God, where there is pain, where there's distance, God, you can do things that, that we cannot do. You can move mountains that we think are impossible to move. You can do that. And for everybody here, in this church community, every person here, in every condition, every path, we bring you, God, our hearts today. And we want to be a church. We long to be a church where we are single and married people growing in our faith together. Sisters and brothers, daughters and sons who are alive, tender-hearted in your grace. Make it so, God. Make it so. We pray in Jesus' name.